0: Red salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Chapter 4 From Small and Weak to Big and Strong We must recognize the balance of forces between us and the enemy. This is the first requirement in waging either an entire war, or a campaign, or a single battle. As matters now stand, we are small and weak, while the enemy is big and strong. There is no doubt that he is extremely superior to us militarily, in such specific terms as number of troops, formations, equipment, technique, training, foreign assistance, and supplies in general. It will take a protracted period of time for us to change this balance of forces in our favor. Thus, protractedness is a basic characteristic of our people's war. The enemy armed forces have four major services, namely Constabulary, Army, Air Force, and Navy, with a total force of at least 100,000 troops at present. Under the fascist dictatorship, enemy troop strength has been increased by at least 40,000, both by an actual increase in regular forces and by the prolongation of military service by 20-year-old trainees from six months to one year and a half. Enemy strength is also beefed up by the, quote, civilian home defense force, unquote, another name for the, quote, Barrio Self-Defense Unit, unquote. The fascist dictator has announced that by the middle part of 1975, the total strength of the reactionary armed forces will go up to 250,000 after the integration of the local police forces under the Philippine Constabulary. The strength of our full-fledged guerrilla forces is a far cry from the regular military strength of the enemy. The typical center of gravity for our guerrilla forces is of mere platoon size. Around it gravitate armed propaganda squads and full-fledged guerrilla squads. So far, it is in northeast Luzon where we have reached the company level of formation with some sufficient strength and performed company-size operations. Now, even here the level of armed activity is reduced to that of platoons and squads. However. The reduction of strength here as a result of relentless enemy campaigns is more than compensated by the growth of the New People's Army on a nationwide scale. Of course, if we were to include part-time guerrilla and militia units, we would be able to cite a higher figure for our military strength, but then these as a body of armed men are small and weak in comparison to the enemy's own irregulars, the quote, civilian home defense forces, unquote, which are far better armed. We cannot properly evaluate our accomplishment in the military field without giving due consideration to certain objective conditions. The subjective forces of the revolution, especially the party and the people's army, started from scratch. The party was rebuilt from scratch on December 26th, 1968. Moreover, it had to face the attacks not only of the barefaced enemy, but also the vicious lava revisionist remnants of the old merger party. The New People's Army was also built from scratch on March 29, 1969. Moreover, it had to face not only the reactionary armed forces but also the Lava Revisionists and the Tarak Sumalong Gang. Not a single rifle was carried over to the full-time guerrillas of the New People's Army from either the anti-Japanese resistance or the Hukbalahap in World War II or from the civil war that followed it the Lava revisionist renegades had thrown away every gun gained from the previous armed struggle as a result of Jose and Jesus Lava's quote, left unquote, opportunist heirs and then Jesus Lava's right opportunist heirs. The New People's Army had to start with a few rifles and handguns, seized mainly from the Two Rock Sumalong gangster clique, to arm nine undersized squads of about seven fighters each. Since it was founded, the new People's Army has had to wage a people's war under conditions where there is neither a global war among the imperialist powers nor an open war among the reactionaries. From the outset, the People's Army has had to contend with a highly unified armed forces. It deserves the highest condemnation for having preserved itself and still having made some expansion and consolidation in the face of a strong enemy military task forces. The suspension of the writ of habeas corpus in 1971 and presently, the martial rule of a fascist dictatorship. Even now when the bulk of the enemy's strength is concentrated in southwestern Mindanao against the Bong Samoro army, the enemy still manages to maintain in each region a task force in each province constabulary and integrated police forces that are hundreds of times in armed strength against ours. It remains a gross disadvantage and weakness for the new People's Army to have so few rifles and so small concentratable forces to face an enemy who launches campaigns of encirclement and suppression by deploying so many units no smaller than a half company for outpost work and oversized platoons, rallying to a full regular company or even a full battalion for seeking encounters with us within an area of encirclement. Under such circumstances, it is quite difficult for us to maintain the initiative and carry out the policy of annihilation in battles. The opportunity to wipe out an enemy's squad or platoon does not often present itself. The enemy even goes so far as to force the evacuation of the entire population by perpetrating massacres, looting, bombardment, and arson. Deprived of mass support within a given area, our small guerrilla forces have to shift elsewhere in the main. At the moment, the only way to amplify our armed strength and fighting effectiveness is to give full play to the popular support that we enjoy. The bolos, spears, crossbows, traps, and other indigenous weapons which the masses can easily avail themselves of, have to be combined with homemade explosives and the few rifles in our hands. By seriously implementing the policy of luring the enemy and advancing in waves on a favorable terrain, both strategically and tactically, we can most effectively put to use the combination of rifles and indigenous weapons, and we can at a certain time use only the latter, if these are the only ones available. There are even occasions when by some stratagem we can disarm quote, home defense unquote, forces, local police forces, and small enemy units without firing a single shot. By taking the initiative fully into our hands, We can repeatedly induce the enemy to bring himself over to our well-laid ambush or send his superior strength somewhere so that we can attack his weak force elsewhere. On each occasion, we make sure of seizing the enemy's military equipment. Especially because of our smallness and weakness, there are two opposite dangers that we have to avoid and counteract. One is trying to cover an area that is actually wider than we can sufficiently cover. This usually involves over-dispensing our guerrilla squads. The other is concentrating on so small an area that at one whiff of the enemy, we do not know where to shift. Guerrilla forces in relation to regular mobile forces operate according to the principle of dispersal. But since all that we have are small guerrilla forces, with absolutely no regular mobile forces yet to serve as a main force on any occasion, then we have to have some relative concentration and some relative dispersal according to the scale of our present guerrilla warfare. We have to have main guerrilla units as well as secondary guerrilla units, guerrilla bases, as well as guerrilla zones. Depending on the circumstances, we have to dispose our limited forces in accordance with definite tasks, in a correct direction and within a definite radius. Our action takes the form of either concentration, shifting, or dispersion. We concentrate to attack the enemy mainly in the form of ambushes and raids on small enemy units that we can wipe out. We disperse to conduct propaganda and organizational work or to, quote, disappear, unquote, before the enemy. We shift to circle or retreat to gain time and seek favorable circumstances for attack. Our guerrilla warfare is characterized by flexibility or timely shifting from one mode of action to another and by fluidity or frequent shifting of ground. We must grasp and give full play to this characteristic to maintain the initiative against the enemy. Our experience has shown that our superiority over the enemy lies in our fighting a just war, a war for the people's democratic interests. We could not have lasted for so long with so small and weak an armed force were it not for the correct ideological and political line that the Communist Party of the Philippines has carried since its re establishment. The enemy is bogged down in an ever-deepening political and economic crisis and does not cease to perpetrate self-defeating abuses and arouse the peoples to rebel. Under the absolute leadership of the party, the new people's army is confident of winning victory because wherever it is and goes, it proves to be politically superior to the enemy because it has flexible strategy and tactics based on concrete conditions that it comprehends. The party is still organizationally small and weak like the New People's Army, but it is bound to grow into a big and strong force so long as it preserves its correct ideological and political line. As matters now stand on a nationwide scale, or even on the scale of every region, the New People's Army has no alternative but to be on the strategic defensive, in opposition to the strategic offensive, of an overweening enemy. But the content of our strategic defensive is a series of tactical offenses that we are capable of undertaking and winning. By winning battles of quick decision, we are bound to accumulate the strength to win bigger battles and campaigns to be able to move up to a higher stage of the war. To graduate from guerrilla warfare to regular mobile warfare as the main form of our warfare, we have to exert a great deal of effort over a long period of time. We are still very much at the rudimentary and early substage of the strategic defensive. We may state that in the long process of its growing from small and weak to big and strong, our people's army will have to undergo certain stages and substages. Having in mind a probable course of development, whereby our forces are inferior now and will consequently become equal and finally superior to the enemy, we can tentatively define three strategic stages. That our people's army will have to undergo it is now undergoing the first stage the strategic defensive consequently it shall undergo the second stage the strategic stalemate when our strength shall be more or less on an equal footing with the enemies and our tug of war with the enemy over strategic towns cities and larger areas shall become conspicuous finally it shall undergo the third stage the strategic offensive when the enemy shall have been profoundly weakened and completely isolated, and shall have been forced to go on the strategic defensive, a complete reversal of his position at the stage of our strategic defensive. The future of the new people's army is bright, though it has to go through a long and torturous road. On the other hand, the future of the reactionary armed forces is dark. A mercenary and parasitic military, in the service of U.S. imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism, has no future, except failure and doom. The most powerful weapon in the hands of the people's army. That is the people's support. We cannot wage a revolutionary war without it. The new people's army fights for the people's democratic interests with self-abnegating and highly conscious iron discipline and with wise and well-informed courage. Our red commanders and fighters fight without fear of sacrifice and death because they are fighting in the broad interest of the people and not in the narrow interest of the imperialists or any individual or clique among the reactionaries. At the level of strategy, our Red Commanders and fighters hate and are contemptuous of the enemy. But at the tactical level, they take serious and meticulous consideration of him so as to defeat every plot and maneuver that he is capable of. Chapter 5 a Fascist Puppet Dictatorship Amidst Crisis The setting up of the fascist dictatorial regime of the U.S. Marcos clique is the clearest manifestation that the ruling political system is racked by a crisis that it can no longer deal with in the old way. The fascist puppet dictatorship is a counter-revolutionary measure of weakness and desperation rather than of strength. A whole series of terrorist acts capped by the Second Plaza Miranda Massacre, was unleashed by the Marcos ruling clique to pave the way for it. These events, and the subsequent imposition of fascist martial rule and of a conspicuously autocratic rule, have incurred the profoundest hatred of the people and have intensified their desire for revolutionary change and for national freedom and democracy. The mastermind behind the fascist dictatorship is U.S. imperialism. The fascist dictatorship has been set up to make sure that under a, quote, new constitution, unquote, the privileges and interests of U.S. imperialism under the 1935 Constitution, the Parity Amendment, and the Laurel-Langley Agreement are not only preserved, but even enlarged in the face of the growing anti-imperialist struggle of the broad masses of the people, and furthermore to harden the Philippines as a base of U.S. imperialism in the western rim of the Pacific and in Asia in the face of the failed U.S. war of aggression in Indochina. As a reward, Marcos is allowed to remain in power indefinitely for as long as he can be useful to U.S. imperialism and, of course, for as long as his ambition does not go beyond being the general representative of and even becoming the wealthiest by far of the comprador big bourgeoisie and the big landlord class. The fascist dictator Marcos keeps on prating about his unjust regime being a, quote, society." But in fact, its monstrous abuses have only served to stress that it is but the worsening of the old semi-colonial and semi-feudal society. We are witnesses today to unbridled puppetry, brutality, corruption, and bankruptcy. Among the local reactionaries, the fascist chieftain, his family, and his closest subalterns in the military and civil bureaucracy are the most outstanding beneficiaries of the puppet brutal, corrupt, and bankrupt, quote, new society, unquote. In essence, the fascist dictatorship is the open terrorist rule of a reactionary clique with big comprador and big landlord interests. The longer it continues in power, the more fertile the ground becomes for our people's war. By negative example, Marcos has stood as the best teacher of the people and the state and revolution. In this sense... He is our best propagandist. He has superbly exposed every evil in this semi-colonial and semi-feudal society by his own lies and misdeeds. His usurpation of all governmental powers, elimination of all legal political parties, monopolization of the press, and the brutal repression of all democratic liberties by such methods as massacre, assassination, zoning, forced mass evacuation, bombardment and arson, Blackmail, extortion, illegal arrest, illegal detention, and torture have proven beyond the doubt the necessity and justness of armed revolution against armed counter-revolution. All the fascist acts of the U.S. Marcos clique carried out with brute armed force are calculated to, quote, stabilize, unquote, the rule of U.S. imperialism and the local reactionary classes over the broad masses of the people. But the essential effect of such acts has been to widen and deepen the armed resistance. The New People's Army, under the leadership of the party, has waged more battles than ever before against the enemy and has established more guerrilla bases and guerrilla zones than ever before. Party and non-party activists, who in the period before Proclamation No. 1081, had waged mass struggles against the same U.S. Marcos clique, have in considerable number joined the revolutionary arms struggle, or have formed a strong revolutionary underground at various strategic points in the country. The Bangsamoro army, which is far better armed than the New People's Army, has so far waged the biggest battles against the enemy and have inflicted severe losses on him in troops and equipment. The revolutionary armed struggle of the national minorities for self-determination and against national oppression in southwestern Mindanao has helped in a big way the New People's Army in various parts of the country by drawing a great part of the enemy's land, sea, and air forces. In return, we are doing our best to wage a people's war in our own areas so as to force the enemy to move helter-skelter. At the moment, we are witness to an enemy with the big dilemma of attending to far south and to far north. There are no significant armed forces opposing the fascist dictatorial regime, except the New People's Army, and the Bang Zamoro Army, in Luzon, Visayas, and the greater part of Mindanao, there is no significant armed resistance except that waged by the New People's Army. We might say that these areas we are faced with a unified reaction. There is no open war among the reactionaries here. There has been a lot of talk about the, quote, Filipino freedom fighters, unquote, an outfit supposedly run by the anti-Marcos group with some U.S. support. But so far, even after two years of fascist martial rule, it appears to be a mere token force given to issuing occasional manifestos threatening some strange mixture of coup d'etat and guerrilla warfare. True to their original and essential character, the lava revisionist renegades have openly surrendered to the U.S. Marcos clique and are blatantly collaborating on hunting down revolutionaries and swindling the masses. There is no way but to treat these revisionist fascist diehards as traitors and spies. Because there is no open war among the reactionaries where it is, the New People's Army is faced with a unified fascist reaction. This means to say that the enemy can launch stronger offensives against us than otherwise in any particular area that he chooses to concentrate on. This is certainly a disadvantage for us. In this regard, we have no alternative but to study and apply the correct strategy and tactics of dealing with enemy campaigns. However, experience has shown that no matter how far the armed resistance in southwestern Mindanao is, it has induced the enemy to drastically reduce his forces in Cagayan Valley since March 1973. There is a long-term advantage in the New People's Army being the only armed force regarded by the people as their own in at least 90 percent of the Philippine territory. It becomes easier and simpler for the middle forces to choose which side they must support. The choice becomes easier and simpler. Indeed, the worse that the enemy becomes. The confidence and trust of the broad masses of the people in the new people's army is so great and resounding, despite the present smallness and weakness of this army, because it is all that they have against the fascist tyranny. The economic crisis, which has been the basis of the crisis of the entire reactionary political system, even previous to the marcos rightist coup, has become far worse under the fascist dictatorship. This economic crisis makes every one of the people throughout the country suffer no matter how it may appear that he is not directly the victim of the political and military abuses of the fascist dictatorship. Linking the fascist puppet dictatorship with the people's economic suffering is the single method which has made our propaganda for armed revolution more effective. Since long before the fascist martial rule, the broad masses of the people have comprehended the responsibility of the U.S. Marcos clique for the economic crisis. A runaway inflation, rampant unemployment, accelerated increase of the tax burden, continuous devaluation of the currency, food, fuel, and fertilizer shortages Unlimited entry of foreign capital and unlimited remittances of profits, enormous foreign trade deficits covered up by technical smuggling, and false statistical figures, excessive foreign and domestic borrowings, ever-increasing military expenditures, and inflationary deficit spending on quote, infrastructures, unquote, which fatten the imperialist banks and foreign contractors, serve the colonial trade pattern and the plunder of the country's natural resources, under opportunities for enormous graft and corruption and land speculation with the loot monopolized by the fascist dictator. All these conspicuous ills characterize the fascist dictatorial regime. The deterioration of the enemy is so rapid that party cadres must keep close watch on fast-changing economic data. The broad masses of the people suffer from the combination of political and economic abuses. As the economy deteriorates. Political tyranny aggravates. To be able to continue exploiting the people, the fascist dictatorial regime of the U.S. Marcos clique resorts to enlarging its armed forces, buying more military equipment, and bribing officers and men with promotions in rank and increases in salary, allowances, and other privileges. Increased expenditures for such a parasitic entity as the military result in further deterioration of the economy. More exploitation and more oppression engender more resistance than another round of military expenditures by the fascist dictatorship in a vicious cycle of its own making. With complete callousness, the fascist dictatorship has been proclaiming throughout the world that it has succeeded in keeping Philippine labor cheap for the imperialists to exploit. Indeed, the U.S. Marcos clique for several years already has so preserved the backward conditions of the country that there is an abundance of the unemployed, Now, under martial rule, labor power is made even cheaper than before. The workers are deprived of their trade union rights, especially their right to strike, even as the prices of basic commodities are skyrocketing. Whenever they demand higher wages, the workers are openly intimidated with armed force by fascist military and are liable to be arbitrarily suspended or dismissed by their employers. The quote, new labor code, unquote, systematizes the suppression of workers' rights under the pincer attack of the fascist government and the big bourgeoisie. To maintain a general state of intimidation, the fascist military and police often conduct raids and zoning operations on factories and workers' communities. The peasants are callously told that if they wish to have their own piece of land, they must enter into contracts with their landlords, whereby they are required to make installment payments so exorbitant that they cannot make good on even the first installment. This is what is bandied about as, quote, land reform, unquote. The peasants are also required to pay high land taxes, special levies on the sale of their produce, membership dues and special fees for the, quote, barangay, unquote, and, quote, Barrio Association, unquote, and fixed contributions to the so-called, quote, Savings Fund, unquote, and, quote, Barrio Guarantee Fund, unquote. Further on, they are required to pay high interest rates on overpriced fertilizers from the Marcos owned planters' products, the, quote, Masagana 99, unquote, program, and increasing fees for irrigation wherever this is available. Some, quote, insurance, unquote, and, quote, Medicare, unquote, schemes are also afoot to suck more blood from the peasant masses. All over the country, the, quote, barangays, unquote, are under orders to set up, quote, civilian home defense forces, unquote. These entail extra expenditures by the peasants and also reduce their working hours in the fields as they are forced to make, quote, rondas, unquote. Where the people's army is already in the midst of the peasant masses, the enemy resorts to the most brutal military operations, which include forced mass evacuation, massacre, looting, arson and indiscriminate bombing and strafing. Like the toiling masses, the urban petty bourgeoisie detests the fascist dictatorship. The bare essence of the reactionary state in the service of the imperialist, big comprador, and feudal interests has become fully and concretely exposed to them in their day to day lives. Their limited incomes are not exempt from the ravages of an inflation generated locally and imported from abroad. The fascist dictatorship has gone so berserk as to suppress all the democratic liberties and persecute tens of thousands of democratic personalities who belong either to the urban petty bourgeoisie or whom this social stratum highly respects. Abuses by the fascist dictator and his military minions have become so widespread that every single urban petty bourgeoisie either has directly experienced some abuse by them or knows a relative or personal friend abused by them. The urban petty bourgeoisie recognize clearly that an atmosphere of intimidation and terror is being whipped up to keep Marcos in power and to promote the interests of foreign and feudal exploiters. The national bourgeoisie, especially the lower and middle sections, find themselves cast away by the fascist dictatorship. They are being forced into bankruptcies. The foreign monopoly firms have become even more rapacious in their activities in the Philippines as they try to make up for their losses and difficulties elsewhere in the world. It is the shameless policy of the fascist dictatorship to link its existence with the sellout of the country to foreign monopoly capitalists, principally American and Japanese. Under the Marcos Constitution, Investment Incentives Act, Export Incentives Act, and so many specific fascist decrees, the U.S. and other foreign monopoly capitalists are enjoying privileges surpassing those under the 1935 Constitution and the Laurel Langley Agreement with its Parity Clause. They are rapidly enlarging their holdings, crushing the national bourgeoisie, taking over all sorts of businesses and opportunities, and plundering the country with complete abandon. While it is true that we are faced with a unified fascist reaction in Luzon, the Sayas, and the greater part of Mindanao, this is but the surface of a situation in which the broad masses of the people are seething with hatred for the enemy and are enthusiastically supporting the early beginning of our people's war. Beneath the apparent strength of the enemy is the deep-going crisis and irredeemable rottenness, If not for the broad support that they enjoy, our small armed units would not be able to last long against the powerful assaults of the enemy.